Hey, over here. It's me, your favorite co-host. Don't tell those other nimcompoops, but I wanted to give you a sweet taste from the jug of premium content. Just wanted to give you a sample of what you could be getting if you subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 level. For the month of October, not only will you get access to our premium episodes and early access to our regular episodes, you'll also receive a button and sticker with designs by Ellen Vandermeide, Instagram, at Voyage with Ellen. So sign up in the month of October. Time's running out. You've got about a week to sign up. You should probably do it right now. What you're about to hear is the very first premium episode we created back in January of this year. For our premium episodes, we do 45s instead of LPs. You'll receive premium episodes on a monthly basis if you subscribe at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. There's always a link in our show notes. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right, we're coming up on five minutes, so wrap it up. Welcome to an extra special, ultra premium, limited edition episode Limited of your favorite podcast. I don't even need to tell you what it is. You know all about it. You're a Patreon subscriber. Patreon. You're giving us money, multiple dollars every dollars. month just to hear this premium content right now. That was too sexual. That got weird. <laughs> It's very dark in here right now. We are currently podcasting with only red lights in a dimly lit room. <laughs> That's accurate. Yeah. In the home of one of my co-hosts, who is also a paranormal fetishist, Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm also joined by a retired kazoo virtuoso, Peter Cook. That is very accurate. I That was one of the first things I ever performed with in public as a child. A kazoo! You retired at age six? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was done then. Been wandering since. Cool. Well, I'm Sean Hartman. This is I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We've decided that for now our special Patreon-only episodes are going to deal with 45s. It's not as collected as LPs, so it's a niche within a niche market. It's niche. Like you, niche. the Patreon subscriber, you're a niche within our algorithmically targeted niche market of vinyl collecting, podcast listening. I won't reveal any further demographics of our market. <laughs> so we are going to have some pedantic section in this where we describe what a 45 is? No. It's listen. like the... The records you buy, except it's littler. And louder. And louder. Often louder. You yes. fucking look it up on Wikipedia if you need to. We're not telling you what it is. 
Tell us about the history of the 45, Sean. <laughs> nah. It's fascinating. <clears throat> All right. So for this debut episode, we had talked about what the what the parameters were going to be on the 45s we selected. Are we going to use the same criteria as the LPs? And we decided that, yes, we are. And we're also going to try and not pick any singles that had a song in at least the top 20 billboard charts. Spoiler alert, I broke that rule. <laughs> same. <laughs> Peter followed the rules, though. (laughs) One out of three. I was up till two in the morning making sure I followed the rules. I have a specific reason why I broke my rules, so we'll we'll see what your fucking excuse is later, Jeremy. I don't have a good one. (laughs) Wait, no, I have a good one. Okay. And they are going to be hearing that on this episode because each 45 is going to be a separate episode. True. True. But you can binge them all right up because you're a Patreon subscriber. Gobble them up. So I picked... The 1968 song by Cliff Nobles and Company. The A-side is called Love is Alright. And let's go ahead and hear that right now before we talk about it. from that gritty soulful sound that must be from philadelphia right shut the fuck up i just told you where it was from 
I'm smart can, about stuff. Jeremy, what could you tell what studio in Philadelphia that was recorded in just based on the sound? Yeah. Yeah. Can you? <laughs> no. I'll teach you how one day. All right. <laughs> but he'd have to charge. That was the song Love is All Right by Cliff Nobles and Company. I was familiar with that one once I heard it. Okay. Are you familiar with the vocals on it, though? No, the horns are what stood out to me. See, there's a specific reason for that. That's the A side of the single, but that was not the hit. It was intended to be the hit. The flip side is a track called The Horse, which is just the instrumental version of that song. And the flip side ended up being the hit. It was a massive hit, actually. It hit number two on the R&B and the pop charts and sold about a million copies in the first three months. But no one knew the vocal side of it. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, it's it's super bizarre. It was not intended to be the hit. It was just Philly DJs are like, whoa, it's instrumental side slaps. And then that just, it just took off. And the whole world decided, nope, B-side's the one that you play off this this single. That reminds me of the MASH theme. I heard that the instrumental version for years, Ooh. and then suddenly I'm hearing... Suicide the... is painless. Yeah, I know. I went, what the <laughs> heck? That's like I said heck because I was young. The darkest song I think I've ever heard. Love it. I mean, it's a relatively dark show, if I'm... you think about it. True. Contextually. I'm going to, like, that meme with the car, like, hard turning away from the exit... I'm going to do that where you're going right now with this mash talk and bring this back. <laughs> mash uh, up. Fair. I feel like I understand the instrumental side being a big hit. Like the vocals on that weren't bad, but the lyrics felt very middle of the road, generic soul lyrics that didn't do much for stimulating my brain. I'm well, not going to lie. That's most of soul music, though. True. It wasn't so much a lyric-based genre of music, especially at that time period. You get later into the 70s, and then there's you know, soul albums that were made more as an artistic statement and more an intellectual basis, but primarily it was dance music. You know, The, the lyrics were kind of just a vehicle for conveying emotion and getting people energized. Cool. Yeah. Cliff Nobles, I'll give you a tiny bit of background, and then we'll play the actual hit single in a few minutes uh he was born clifford james nobles in 1941 he was born in alabama grove hill and he eventually moved to philadelphia and was signed at an early age to atlantic records put out like two or three singles weren't hits and he got dropped and then he moved into a philadelphia commune with some fellow musicians who ended up being his backing band rebranded himself as Cliff Nobles and Company with his actual band instead of just going and singing over a studio band and uh, got signed to Phil L.A. of Soul Records out of Philadelphia. He cut this single in 1968. It was a huge hit. But as we talked about, the hit single didn't have his vocals on it. So because the name Cliff Nobles became synonymous with this instrumental hit, the label that owned his contract then started putting out more instrumental songs without even using his backing band or even having him in the studio. So there's all these minor hits under the name Cliff Nobles and Companies that he never touched. <laughs> wow. He had one like very minor hit that he sang on a few years later. I think it was maybe in the top 100. And then after that, his music career died. And he went and worked construction for the rest of his life. He left the commune to go be a construction worker. Yeah. 
left the entire music industry. I don't know what his uh, record deal was for sales of this record, but judging by the stories of the maturity of 60s soul artists, it probably wasn't good. And I doubt he made enough money to live on after that. That's probably a nice little check on the side for every so often, maybe. Maybe. I I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't get anything from it, but I I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to bet he wasn't doing construction as a hobby. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he died in 2008, still in Philadelphia, still doing manual labor, basically. Wow. Yeah, pretty heavy. This is a kind of a real oddity. I don't know if there's any other instances of... Are there other instances of the instrumental version of a song becoming a hit? Not to my knowledge. Jeremy, you got any thoughts on that? From, like, not necessarily from a vocalist. Like, obviously, there's been other instrumental hit songs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, especially fun. in, like, the con- uh, soundtrack context, like we just talked about, but... To my knowledge, this is relatively unique where the vocal side was intended as the hit. And there's a lot of soul singles where, yeah, the B-side is a very forgettable afterthought, either an instrumental or just a cover or something random. And it's never intended to be a hit because most of the time people didn't get hits off the A and B side of a single. That was very rare to happen. Nice. Yeah. So let's go ahead and and hear that B-side and see if it makes sense to us why the instrumental was a hit. Jeremy, any thoughts on that? I like it. 
I feel like the vocals not being there at minimum don't hurt anything. And I think we talked about it a little bit while it was playing that the instruments kind of carry it themselves. And when they're out front a little more, it kind of, it grooves better. In a way, I'm not positive if the band re-recorded the instrumental or if they just cut the vocals off the first track and did it that way. I'm, I think that they re-recorded it. So I think that does explain a little bit why it seems to groove a little more. It's also louder in the mix because they're not putting vocals over top of it. Mm-hmm. That steals from everything else. Yeah. And it is, it's funkier than a lot of your standard soul tracks of the day. It's not quite as tight as the Motown style of soul singles. It's got a lot of funk to it. It makes sense why that was a hit. The instrumental's great. And I think also learning that his backing band all lived together and we're not just studio musicians, you know, reading charts and ripping out a million songs a day, I think adds to why it has such a locked in groove and more energy than your standard soul song. Agreed. <laughs> Well, it's a very interesting story, and I really, uh, I'm kind of fascinated. I kind of I want to investigate if uh, there are other instances of that happening, but we're not going to do that here. No. And if you, you, the listener, can do that on your own time, too, or tell us. <laughs> uh, by the way, two other quick nuggets. The horn section on that ended up becoming the group MFSB, which were one of the main house groups for the later 70s Philly soul disco movement. They're on a million records throughout the Philadelphia soul movement. And then also, the only reason why that song did not hit the number one spot was because of the song This Guy's In Love With You by Herb Albert. Oh, really? <laughs> they couldn't top it. <laughs> Can't beat Herb. That's no. why he's everywhere. So, Sean. Yeah. I own like six 45 records. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people buy them. And I don't know where or how to look for good ones. So I might be in the same boat as some of our listeners who are listening to this. Can you kind of give us the quick and the dirty of what 45s are good for and where we might find good ones? Definitely. I was in the same boat with you not too many years ago. For the longest time, I was pretty vocally against 45s. I didn't understand what the point was. Like, why would I want one song when I could have, you know, a whole side of an LP and not have to get up every two minutes to flip the record? And my love of 45 started when I really started getting deeper into soul music. Because of some of the things I learned were specifically with soul music that was all recorded for singles in the first place. And part of the reason for that market choice is most of the people buying soul music were lower income people who could not afford LPs as often. So people were buying singles and then DJs were using singles and people would kind of DJ by themselves more commonly. House parties, people would just be putting on singles. With the with the 45 being cheaper and being in more circulation with people, the LPs are less common and are more expensive. So you can get some really amazing soul singles on 45 for, you know, dollar a piece oftentimes. But to find the LP that that song is on, sometimes you're going to be spending $20, $30, $50 or more to get the same music. And then the other side of it is the mix on the 45 a lot of times is a little bit different than the LP. The LP was considered more of the upper class or the white audience market. So a lot of times they would 
add some string section, change the mix a little bit so it wasn't quite as hard. 45s are often usually mixed louder, so they kind of hit harder than the LP version when you're listening to it. And by sound quality standards, something that's spinning faster is going to have a better audio quality than something that's spinning slower. 45s were often damaged more than LPs were just because they're either housed without sleeves or in paper sleeves. So the amount of scratches on a lot of 45s kind of negates the sound quality improvement, but it is technically there if you have a clean copy of a 45. And I suppose when you think about this artist in particular, and I'm going to guess many artists, some of the lower level, less known artists didn't get to record full albums and LPs. The labels might send them in to do a single or two. They might get that put out and that's it. That's all they get. And it might be bomb, but it didn't sell well. So they didn't get the exposure and the promotion and they get lost to history until you're the one who finds them. Definitely. There's a lot of artists that have one, two, maybe three, 45, never on an LP, and that's their entire career. So digging into this format gives you a lot more options of things to discover. I think a lot of local bands, when you get into scenes from back in the 60s, often they'll, like if you get a compilation of theirs, it's a collection of 45s they cut, and that's all they ever did. Definitely. Most LPs were that way with soul music anyways. Like you didn't get to do an LP unless you'd had a string of hits. And then usually the rest of the songs on the album that weren't hits are kind of forgettable because they're covers or kind of just half-ass songs that they whip together in a quick studio session. All right. All right. Thank you for bringing that, Sean. Yeah. My name is co-host Jeremy. My name is co-host Peter. My name is also co-host but Sean. Wow. Thank you for enjoying this premium content and for kindly subscribing via Patreon. It supports us and helps us out. Mm-hmm. We sink tons and tons of our time into this for the love of it because there isn't any money, but you can help take the burden at least of the money off us and that's great and we'll still do it for free yeah thanks thank you very much (laughs) 